This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Having examined some of the institutional and ritual aspects of the religious dimension of the high Italian city republics, I would now like in conclusion to look at their citizens in a more personal way. This means looking at some of those whom their fellow citizens looked at as especially holy, models of communal piety. Each Christian society produces saints after its own image of holiness, and medieval Italy, communal Italy, was no exception. The city made the saints. Citizens of the communes found their saints not in the monastic or clerical world of churchmen or among nuns, but among themselves, the lay faithful. Recognizing holiness, they canonized it themselves, calling on the pope or hierarchy only rarely to ratify their decisions. The religiosity of the period's holy persons, its saints, was really that of the city and the local church, albeit lived more intensely. Although not wholly typical of ordinary lay piety by their very exceptional behavior and styles of life, the saints and their cults were a fixture of the communes. In short, the spiritual geography of the Italian republics would be incomplete without them, and so I am ending with them. 12th century Italian cities found their saints among the spiritual fathers of the mother church, but these were bishops with a difference. They defended true religion and the independence of their cities. Bishop Ubaldo of Gubbio uttered prayers from the walls of his besieged city and set the enemy armies to flight. This, with his many works of charity, inspired outpourings of devotion. Soon after Ubaldo's death, his successor, Bishop Teobaldo, and another contemporary, Giordano of Città di Castello, celebrated the good bishop in Latin and vernacular lives. Northern communes also chose contemporary bishops as city patrons, as the Mantuans did with Luca, uh, Anselm of Luca, who was not their bishop. Their, the good communal bishops supported communal independence of imperial tyranny. In the Veneto, Giovanni Cacciaforte, 1125 to 83, the first prior of San Vittorio at Cremona, then abbot of San Lorenzo, then bishop of Mantua and Vicenza, rallied Cremona to the aid of the Lombard communes in their struggles with the emperor, Frederick Barbarossa. Through his sermons, he supported Cremona's own struggle for communal independence, an activity for which he paid with his life. He was also famous for his protection of citizens against the magnates now exiled to the countryside. His cleric, Enrico, explained the holy bishop's murder happened because he refused to abandon a poor man while his cleric went off to buy that pauper a cloak. During Giovanni Cacciaforte's canonization investigation by Bishop Homobono of Vicenza, citizens of Cremona and Vicenza testified to the holiness of their spiritual father not only as a defender of the mother church, but as a pastor who took his greatest delight in celebrating the liturgy for his people. I wish there were a couple bishops here today. More importantly, the good bishop saint brought internal reconciliation to his city. During one feud, Bishop Obaldo walked into the piazza where the factions stood ready to do battle. He lay down between the two groups as the sword play began. The men stopped fighting in panic that someone had struck down the bishop. This allowed the women to pour into the square, assaulting their hot-headed men and crying to high heaven for help. As the women took the men home, Ubaldo got up and walked slowly away. Contrite, the factions swore to patch up their quarrel. Communal holiness combined an identification with one city, pious orthodoxy, reconciliation, and neighborliness Virtues accessible to any devout Christian. You don't have to be a bishop or a priest or a nun. One did not have to be any of those clerical states to do this. Writing of the saints of communal Italy, the fine uh, French historian André Bochet remarked, quote, These saints were not at all fictional or mysterious beings, but well-known people nearby in place and time who brought themselves to the attention of their contemporaries 
while still alive. Characteristically, holiness was found in one's neighbors. The communes were the great age of the neighborhood saint. Before 1200, the triangular region framed by Verona, Milan, and Western Tuscany venerated a legion of pious laymen. Born in the city of their later cult, they grew up there, practiced a trade, married and exhibited prayerful charity towards their neighbors. Throughout the 13th century, the cities continued to produce homegrown saints. In contrast to the bishop saints of the 1100s, the early communes, those of the 13th century included mostly lay women and laymen, often of humble background. Who canonized these local men and women? The holiness of communal saints was recognized first by their neighbors and co-workers. Such a saint might pop up just about anywhere. In its very ordinariness, lay holiness could remain invisible even to those who were around it. Penance could be mistaken, of course, for eccentricity or even dementia. Giovanni Palingotto, with his weird homemade habit of rags and his predilection for giving away his food and clothing to beggars, received more contempt than admiration in his hometown. Only on pilgrimage to Rome at the time of Boniface VIII's Jubilee Indulgence in 1300 did a stranger signal, single him out from the crowd as that saint from Urbino. His neighbors were never so sure, at least while he was alive. Conversely, experiences on pilgrimage might convince a holy man to seek his sanctity at home. Meditation on the Romans' disrespect for the Vicar of Christ which Ranieri of Pisa witnessed while on pilgrimage to St. Peter's, made him doubt that these Romans were worthy of the saint's presence and his own. The voice of God came to him in prayer. Follow your thoughts. My ways are your ways. I, the Lord, am speaking. He promptly left Rome and went home to Pisa. The best holiness grew, grows at home. The surest holiness was ordinary and useful. Ramando Palmerio a Piacenza, pilgrim and penitent, was married and had five children. His reputation for sanctity came, like that of Pietro Nomobono, from his humility and from his founding of a poorhouse, Zenodokia, near the church of the Dodeci Apostoli at Piacenza. Homobono of Cremona, 1117, perhaps, to 1197, born into a family of merchants, married and practiced the trade of a tailor. Only the intensity of his prayer life and occasional extravagant almsgiving, for which his wife regularly chastised him, marked him out from his neighbors. So trusted was he that the city of Cremona called on him to mediate between warring factions. After Homobono's death, his bishop, Sicardo of Cremona, went to Rome in person as a representative of the city to request that Pope Innocent III canonize the Holy Taylor. Innocent emphasized three elements of Homobono's holiness in his bull of canonization, the first in history, his devotion to mass and office, his almsgiving, and his work for peace among his fellow citizens. The Pope did not try to hide Homobono's distinctively lay and civic-minded piety. His late 13th century biographer also praised Homobono's honesty in business, thereby uh, recapturing an aspect of his piety missed by the Pope, but prized in the workaday world of the communes. Biographers of the communal saints emphasized their subjects' orthodoxy, perhaps because they often came from trades like textiles and leatherworking that had a perhaps undeserved reputation for heresy. Homo Bono's biographer contrasted his orthodoxy with the heretical city of Cremona in his very first sentence. Homo Bono was a rose among thorns. The witnesses at Giovanni Buono's canonization inquest emphasized his dislike of heretics. He worked suitably edifying and orthodox miracles. On Easter, the day of new birth, he planted a stick cut from an apple tree and put forth buds within an hour. For learned clerical observers, an idiota at illiteratus like Giovanni Buono presented difficulties. He could not formulate theologically sophisticated statements of belief. But 
For his lay neighbors, the saint's orthodoxy was less problematic. It manifested itself in his reverence for the name of God and the sacraments. As a child, Oringa Christiana, for example, miraculously upchucked whenever anyone blasphemed or spoke obscenities, verba turpia, in her presence. But among citizens and neighbors, extravagance raised eyebrows. Sibylina, the fiercest of lay ascetics, moderated her self-flagellation when friends criticized it as excessive and bad for her health. But, she said, my genuflections and prostrations are not extreme. They keep me warm in cold weather. <laughs> no affection, uh, affectation caused Pietro Petinaio, the holy Sienese comb maker, that's what his last name means, to call his wife Patrona, mistress. He came straight home after work rather than hanging out in a tavern with the boys. His marital devotion proved, in spite of his combmaker's proclivity for self-mortification, that he held the duties of marriage in high regard. But laden as he, though he was, Pietro honored monasticism and named one of his sons, Monaco, monk. The communal saint was above all useful and helpful to those around him. When Giovanni of Cusi visited the Sienese lay penitent Galgano's hermitage, he found the ex-knight not performing works of mortification, but baking loaves of bread for the poor. Galgano asked the visitor to take them to town and distribute them to the needy. Lay saints proved their holiness through earning a living. The pious domestic, Zita of Luca, found her real penance in the abuse she received from her master and other domestics. She used her free time to serve the poor and won over her detractors by her patience and humility. The illiterate Enrico of Treviso, died around 1310, daily visited every church in his city and practiced mortification by night, but his neighbors knew him as a day laborer who gave away all he acquired. Pietro Petanaio sat at his bench in the Piazza in the Siena Piazza del Campo, selling his combs, when a man rushed by and knocked over his desk. Rather than getting angry, the comb maker blessed God and patiently set it up again. Mortified, the man came back and asked pardon. Pietro cheerfully granted it, recalling Jesus' recommendation of forgiveness, on which I assume you'll hear a sermon today. It was constantly in small acts of charity that made the saint. <clears throat> Miracles, when they came, confirmed little acts of kindness. Omo Bono's wife left him at home with a cake, a torta, and he gave it to some beggars. When she returned home and wanted the cake to serve at dinner, Omo Bono prayed and God miraculously replaced it. On the way to deliver lunch wine to vineyard workers, Homo Bono weakened and gave it away to some beggars. He filled the bottles with water in desperation. God changed it to wine. Per Dio meglio vinon, mai non gustemo, più di questo, said the workers. By God, we've never tasted better wine than this. Homo bono refrained from criticizing their use of the Lord's name. Charity included overlooking the peccadillos of others. God could work miracles in spite of saintly humility. Maria Bella of Modena brought her son uh, Vivaldino to Giovanni Bono and asked him to heal an ulcer on the boy's leg. Giovanni refused to come out of his hut, insisting, non son Deus, I'm not God. The boy was healed anyway. No saint matched Pietro Petanaio of Siena as a model of day-to-day -day holiness. When a butcher offered him a good deal on soup bones, he insisted on paying the fair price of 12, 24 shillings Sienese, refusing a 12-shilling bargain. He arrived in Pisa to purchase material for making combs. The locals tried to cheat the Sienese bumpkin with defective merchandise. He paid their price, but showed he was not deceived by walking over and throwing the useless horn into the Arno River. Pietro respected the business of his fellow homemakers. His reputation for honesty did help sales. On Saturdays, when he sold in the Piazza del Campo, people came from the whole district to buy, and sadly, no other homemaker got any business. Mortified, 
Pietro took down his stand and reopened only after Vespers, when the other vendors had closed for the day after their sales. Moderns would have called the saint a good union man. Pietro made no claim to moral superiority. Youths accosted him in the street and posed a sordid question. Tell us, Pietro, if by chance you found yourself locked in a room with a beautiful woman and no one would ever know, what would you do? The saint replied, if I were in that position, I know what I should do, but I don't know what I would do. I'll tell you, that's why I guard myself from sins when no one knows, just as if the whole world was watching. The boys took off, disarmed by Pietro's honesty. The key to holiness was to live a good life at work and home, avoid sin, and not seek worldly attention and honor. Communal holiness flourished in community. It was social. Even a recluse like Humiliana dei Cerchi of Florence lived surrounded by friends and neighbors. So important were they to her life that her hagiographer had to include their names. Her companion Gisla, Donna Luciana, Ranieri from the parish of San Procolo, Donna Dialta di Ugalotto from the parish of Santa Margarita, and Donna Benne di Riccio from the parish of San Lorenzo. Even an anchoress could find, holy, could find holiness in isolation. Not even an anchoress could find holiness in isolation. Siena once leveled a tax to reduce a brigand's stronghold in the Contado. When Pietro heard the news, he immediately asked the rate, gathered the money, and paid it. No pacifist he, but a good citizen. The commune, however, refused his money and asked only that he pray for victory. Pietro insisted on paying. Quote, my dearest governors, I always desire to walk in peace, but this money belongs to my commune. I will not take it away, since it is the commune's, not mine. He left the cash on the tax counter and departed. An Italian who willingly paid his taxes. Wonders never cease. The communal saint was a model of civic rectitude. Returning late one night from prayers, Pietro ran into the members of the Barcello family who were responsible for the night guard. Although he had technically broken curfew, they let him off. The next day, Pietro turned himself into the Podesta and insisted on paying the fine for his infraction. The chagrined Podesta assured him that, quote, the law was not made for you, but for transgressors and other bad livers. Pietro did not need to pay. The city offered him exemption from the curfew and city taxes. Much to the Podesta's astonishment, Pietro declined the curfew exemption and insisted on paying his fine, but also his upcoming taxes. No tax audit ever found the Sienese in arrears. He was a man of his city. Albertano of Brescia, the 13th century lay theologian, emphasized that true piety showed itself in practical fruits. Uh, Gerardo dei Tintori of Monza, Gualtiero of Lodi, Romondo Palmario of Piacenza, Faccio of Cremona, and other communal holy men founded or ran hospitals. God gave Romondo Palmario, the most famous of the hospital founders, his mission. As Romondo was returning from pilgrimage to Rome, God appeared to him and told him to found a house for indigents and pilgrims back at Piacenza. God also warned him that the Piacentines were fascist, stiff-necked, and unlikely to honor their hometown prophet. God designed the habit that Ramundo was to wear, sky blue, colores eteriei, falling below his knees with large sleeves and a cross on the shoulder, but no capoose. So dressed, Palmera Ramundo presented his plan to the bishop, who was delighted to approve it. At least the bishop could recognize a good thing when he saw it. By the time of his death in 1202, Ramundo had won over the entire city by his service. They took to invoking the new saint in rhyming verse. Raimundo's hospital became a training ground for other social workers. Gualtiero of Lodi, uh, 1084 to 1224, became a hospital brother in Raimundo's hospital at the age of 15. After suitable experience, he returned to Lodi to work at the hospital of San Bartolomeo. Finally, he found in his own hospital the Misericordia. The bishop and commune of Lodi both funded the project. Hospital work was not, however, restricted to men. Margaret of Cortona, there she is in her plaid habit again, uh, <clears throat> had been the mistress of a local nobleman. 
After his murder in a feud, her family disowned her and she entered a life of severe penance. With time, she recast her penance into a more useful mode, working as a midwife doing charitable work, and then she founded a hospital and charitable confraternity. Her life spent in service caused the people of Cremona to declare the former kept woman a saint immediately after her death. In Cremona, visitors can see her with the nimbus of a saint in the 14th century stained glass window, although papal canonization had to wait till 1728. Siena viewed hospital service as a suitable expiation for crime, as well as a way to holiness. The city banished Andrea di Gallerani, uh, died 1251, a successful soldier after he killed a blasphemer in a fit of rage. They later let him return to found a hospital and devote himself to serving the sick. Again, a cult sprung up immediately after the murderer's death. Saints cared about households as well as people. Sor Maria Bella of Modena, the wife of the by then deceased Barbara Curcio, told how her husband became a member of Giovanni's order without revealing that he was married. When Giovanni found out, he ordered Bonacurcio to go home and live with his wife. He replied that he could not because Modena had exiled him for debt. Giovanni arranged for Maria Bella to move to Cesena so the couple could reestablish their family. Eventually, both spouses became penitents dedicated to the pious ex-minstrel Giovanni Buono. Even an enclosure in an anchor hold did not prevent service to neighbor. Oringa Cristiana built up her reputation for miracles by conferences with those who daily spoke to her at her enclosure's consultation window. Umiltà of Ferienza had her cell at Santa Polinare fitted with a window into the church for communion and one to the outside for receiving alms and dispensing advice. These women's legende give glimpses of those who visited them and their requests. Donna Grigia asked Margarita Città di Castello to be godmother for her granddaughter, and she agreed. Dionisio of Modena, master of the Augustinians, visited Sibelina Biscossi, she's one of my favorites, by the way, at the window of her anchor hold to consult about his leadership of the order. Giovanni de Tadeo de Popoli, Pepoli consulted the elderly Sibelina on the politics, on politics while traveling to Avignon in 1353 as agent of the Visconti during negotiations with Pope Urban V. Sibelina's favorite place to meditate and pray was at her little window to the world. It was open. When it was open, it showed that she was on call to give advice or receive little gifts of cherries from her friends. The message from the anchor hold could be frightening as well as convivial. In May of 1288, Margarita prophesied that Antichrist was innocent and many would fall away. She twice warned her clerical admirers to repent, reform, and prepare for tribulations. Umiliana de Cerchi foresaw severe tribulations at the hands of the Podesta of Florence when she denounced the city's anti-papal policies. This persecution, she knew, made her one with the sufferings of Christ. Male saints generally practiced the temporal works of mercy and left the spiritual works to the women. But even a craftsman could serve as a physician of the soul. Pietro Petinaio, on the way to Florence for comb-making supplies, stopped at the water fountain in Casalina uh, de Chianti to snack on some fresh figs with the locals. The figs' qualities inspired him, layman as he was, to give a little sermon on the sweetness of God who had made them, and the men were suitably edified. Saints and cities called on the recognized holy people in their midst to deal with sensitive aspects of public life. Outsiders sought the local sense as points of contact. Ambassadors from Reggio, uh, Emilia, approached Asdente of Parma in 1284, asking that his city take in exiles from Reggio. The toothless prophet told them to undertake their own work for internal peace by Christmas, lest Reggio be destroyed by civil war, as it happened in Modena. The ambassadors promised they'd arrange peace by marriage alliances, but then ignored the prophet's advice. They should have listened. Asdente predicted that any arrangements they set up would be fraudulent. The peacemakers making failed. 
In the 1280s, Pietro Patanayo acted as a go-between between Siena's government and the Sienese exiles, called Ghibellines, whatever that means, uh, at Arezzo. The commune named him to select prisoners for release on Easter in 1282 and 1284. Aringa Cristiana left her hold to warn the council of Castelfiorentino that disaster would follow if they became involved in a dispute between two neighboring towns. But one member convinced the city to invite, ignore the advice from that Muercula, that little old lady. The man died in the subsequent battle. One ignored a saint at one's peril. Support for hometown independence and the rights of the mother church caused no misgivings among the citizens of the communes. The goldsmith, Faccio of Fremona, had to leave his native Verona after its loss of independence to the da Romano tyrant family in June 1226. After the fall of the tyrant, Faccio returned to his native city. Alas, the Republican saint fell afoul of the new tyranny of Mastino and Alberto della Scala in 1259. He remained in prison until a 12th, whatever that means, army, under the command of uh, Azzo d'Este, freed him in 1262. St. Faccio sanctified a worldly trade like goldsmithing and active involvement in politics by his personal asceticism, remarkable honesty, and charitable service. After a period of pilgrimage, Faccio founded a hospital, an order of lay penitents, the Società dello Spirito Santo, and ministered to the sick and possessed. Conversion did not inhibit an active life. He healed the sick with blessed bread, personally exercised demoniacs, even some possessed nuns at the bishop's request, and practiced his trade for the glory of God. Good relations between the holy person and city brought mutual benefits. Cities competed to recruit possible saints. It took an apparition of the Blessed Virgin and an intervention from the Bishop of Lucca to end the quarrel over whether Castelfranco or Castel Santa Croce would construct a monastery for Oringa Cristiana. Castel Santa Croce got the honor. The communes knew that any holy person might become a protector in heaven. After death, the commune and neighbors promoted the cults and erected the tombs of their divinely favored children. The parish or cathedral clergy wrote their lives, at least until later in the century when mendicants came to dominate hagiography. In contrast with practice in the communal period, however, modern canonization, as we have heard, is a centralized process in the making of the saint can take decades, if not centuries. The modern procedure has distinct steps in an initiation of the process for the servant of God, approval of a recognized cult under the title of blessed. You heard about all this from Carlos yesterday. Until, finally, the Pope declares a saint of the universal church. The people of medieval communal Italy knew none of this. Today, public veneration of a non-canonized saint can even block papal canonization. The people of the communes created their saints by acclamation. The public help came first, and it made the saint. The canonist Pope Gregory IX recognized that the locals were often the best judges of holiness when he opened an inquest into the canonization of Ambrogio of Massa, 1225 to 1240. He did so in the very year of the holy man's death, responding to the pleas of, quote, the people and council of Orvieto. In the people's mind, miracles, not papal commissions, made sense. Miracles attracted devotees. St. Omobono Cremona's biographer observed that miracles not only confirm faith in God, they prove the holiness of his servants. Quote, for a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit. And the fruit did not have to be of cosmic dimension. The miracle that initiated the cult of Oringa Cristiana occurred a couple days after her death. A cleric named Don Tommaso was suffering from a bad headache. He offered a candle at her tomb, the headache suddenly left him, and the candle remained lighted in spite of the wind. The miracles that followed were more substantial, including healing, sight to the blind, liberation of a paralytic, exorcism, and saving from drowning. At Oringa's shrine, the miracles seemed to have come during waves of devotion every other year, at least at the lists of miracles uh, notarized at the tomb as any evidence. Great cults were made of little miracles. A poor woman's chicken had gone off its feed. She invoked 
Gerardo Cagnoli, and it regained its appetite. The devotees, even pious ones, did expect results from their saints. When the to-be saint, Sibylina Viscosi, got no results from her prayers to St. Dominic to restore her eyesight, she berated the saint, quote, give me back those prayers and praises which I offered to you for no purpose. The saint got the message and restored her, her sight post-haste. The Franciscan Salambene and an anonymous chronicler of Parma both provide vivid descriptions of the growth and establishment of a popular cult, that of uh, Alberto de Villadonia, uh, the wine porter in the 1280s. Alberto, a humble and pious laborer, day laborer in fact, had died at Cremona in 1279. Reports of the multiplying miracles at his tomb threw his high hometown into religious exaltation. The reports reached Piacenza, where a chronicler recorded the death of Saint Alberto, a man splendid for his miracles. Throughout Lombardy, people made pilgrimages to the shrine at Cremona. Among these were a group of wine porters from Parma, several of whom reported cures. They returned to Parma with a relic of Alberto's toe, uh, and uh, they got permission to display it in San Pietro near Piazza Nuova. At Reggio, that city's wine carriers society displayed relics in their churches of San Giorgio and San Giovanni Battista. In both cases, the wine porters began to congregate and venerate the relics. Soon, the clergy joined the laity in flocking to Alberto's new shrine at Parma. The commune and the clergy erected pavilions and stretchers for the sick in the Piazza del Comune facing the Duomo of San Gimignano. The cathedral clergy offered solemn masses daily, cures multiplied, the ministers of the city, the wine carriers, and other devotees decorated Alberto's shrine in San Pietro with purple drapes, damask hangings, and a baldacchino. Offerings estimated at the extraordinary sum of 300 pounds imperial were collected. That's cash. Offerings estimated, pardon me, these permitted the commune to purchase the Malabranchi family's house in Strada Claudia near the church of Santo Stefano and established there a hospital for the sick and poor, the hospital of Santo, uh, Sant'Alberto. On this festival, the societies of the city militia processed through the city, a town with reliquaries carrying crosses and banners and sick. Priests erect images of him in their churches at popular request, and the city had his image painted on porticos and city walls. From there, images and devotions spread to the villages and castles of the Parmese Cantado. Lay devotion powered the canonization of Santa Alberto, the spread of his cult and its subsequent patronage by the commune. The supervision of his cult was the work of the city government, which collected the offerings and oversaw expenditures. Char clerical involvement only arrived late and out of breath with the clergy of the cha chapels of the city where his cult was located. Devotion to him spread to the Duomo after, quote, the people of the commune demanded more splendid and public veneration. The cities themselves made sense. When the beggar penitent St. Nebulone of Faenza died in 1280, the Podesta city officials, the councils, C-O-N-S-U-L-S, and the whole council, C-O-U, and CIL attended the funeral with lighted candles. The first post-mortem miracles were recorded at the deposition of his body on 18 July of that year. When St. Margarita Città di Castello began working miracles from her tomb, the city fathers paid for the balsam to embalm, to embalm her body. When Bishop Sicardo of Cremona made the first petition to Rome for a papal canonization, that of Homo Bono already mentioned, he acted in the name of his city. It was the request of the commune, as Gregory IX admitted, that, he, that caused him to grant approval to the cult of Ambrogio of Massa. During the canonization request for St. Giovanni Buono, it was Mantua City Herald Michelino who summoned the witnesses. When Giovanni's canonization commission asked Domenica Guastalla if she had come to testify of her free will, she replied, no, I have come at the order of the commune. Each Italian city had a place, sometimes several places, to which people went on pilgrimage. It was the saint's place. With few exceptions, earlier shrines, such as the Jerusalem complex at Santo Stefano in Bologna, 
were depositories of relics, the relics of local saints. When one visited the churches in Ravenna, for a solemn manning noted, the relics carried the indulgences, not the churches. At Bologna Santo Stefano, the relics of San, San Vitale and Agricola became the major attraction by the late 13th century. Although certainly on, not unknown outside of Umbria and the south, the countryside lacked shrines of this type. The best known Sienese exceptions, uh, Tuscan exceptions, are both Sienese. One was the shrine of San Anzano, still active today, uh, the ancient martyr adopted as communal patron. The other was the shrine of San Galgano, now a ruin, but that shrine originated during the saint's lifetime because relics of Anzano had, because of relics, Anzano had himself collected. There were very few reported healings or interventions linked to images. It was the saints' bones and the places touched by them that worked the cures. When Umiliana visited the holy places of Florence, she visited the Loca Sanforum, the places of the saints. Beggars came too. They knew where to go find the crowds. Saints themselves hallowed the places. When the canons of the city of Cremona decided to erect a shrine for San Faccio, they positioned his tomb on the very spot he was accustomed to pray in the cathedral. St. Bona of Lucca appeared in a vision to a woman with a broken arm and identified herself as Bona of San Martino, the saint whose shrine was in that particular church. She was a hometown girl. The woman understood and found the right church. In the shrine record, the largest blocks of miracles worked by St. Bona were for people at her chapel. The saint was local. The devotees were her neighbors. Diverse as communal saints were in life, their shrines possess an even wider variety of local rituals and practices. Even after their saints, uh, the death after their deaths, the local saints lived on in their own neighborhoods. The Blessed Bona of Pisa was especially receptive to petitions made by locals with bare feet and dressed in sackcloth, recalling her own garb as a serving girl. At the tomb of San Simone of Colazzone, the best results came from kneeling and rubbing the afflicted part of the body on the tomb. Healing power was physical and tangible. Brusca de Gianno came to San Simone for a cure of her paralyzed hand. She put it through the opening in the shrine that allowed pilgrims to touch the reliquary inside. On touching it, she felt a wind pass through her hand. Drawing it out, she found it healed. Bishop Ricardo of Trivento, the guardian of the tomb of St. Odo of Navarra, was obliging. In serious cases, he had the tomb opened and applied the saint's incorrupt hand to the afflicted <coughs> member. Baraduccia, the Odalesco di Pietro, received such administration on the feast of St. Nazarius in June of 1240. She was cured of a fistula on her jaw. Contact could be more indirect. Friends brought a demoniac from Poggiacavallo in the Contrado of Bologna to the feast of the new city patron, San Petronio, which we've heard about before. She found freedom when the custodians covered her with the altar linens from the shrine containing the relics. The woman went away, praising all three Bolognese saints and their power. While the tomb provided the most direct access to the local saint, custodians provided portable objects of devotion. After all, people demanded something to take home with them. At the shrine of San Enrico in Treviso, Bartolomeo di Castagnolo, Antonio di Barone, and Gerardo di Narbo, the three lawyers paid by the commune to record the depositions of miracles and notarize them, supervised a stall distributing blessed bread and wine to pilgrims. At the tomb of San Gerardo of Cagnoli, the custodian Bartolomeo wrote out cards with hymns and collects in honor of the saint. They could be taken away and used like relics for curing the sick. One touched them to the affliction. The perfectly orthodox practice of leaving unconsecrated hosts on a saint's tomb overnight and keeping them as relics is not restricted to the shrine of the somewhat dubious saint, Guglielma at Milan. After visiting the saint or that of the town next door, anyone could take a souvenir home. The royal saint Elizabeth of Hungary's body famously exuded a trickle of miraculous oil. But in this, she was outdone by the poor serving girl of Luca. Streams of oil gushed from the tomb of Saint Zita. Clergy and laity mopped it up and carried it away in buckets. And the saint did not, what the saint did not provide, the shrine custodians could. 
At the shrine of San Giovanni Bono, the custodians dipped relics, his relics in water and distributed it to the faithful. At the shrine of San Gerardo of Cagnoli, they added rose essence to the infusion. At San Simone of Colazzone, uh, Caterinuccia of Spoleto received a cure for cataracts. I've got to go to the shrine. By rinsing her eyes with water used for washing the tomb. No saint's water was more celebrated in communal Italy than that of Ranieri of Pisa. Saint Ranieri's water originated when someone noticed that water used to wash the tomb had become perfumed with an odor of wine. His relic-infused water was available to all who visited. His hagiographer reminded readers that the saint himself blessed water for the sick while he was still alive. Ranieri's Vita includes the prayers to bless his water so that readers could make more of theirs at home if they ran out. The prayers are filled with biblical images like those in the blessing of baptismal water at Easter. There's also a blessing for St. Ranieri's bread, which could be taken to the sick. But it was the water that worked the greatest miracles and gave the saint his most famous name, St. Ranieri of the water, Sanctus Ranierius de Aqua. One paralytic, cured by the use of St. Ranieri water, donated his crutches to the church and became the shrine custodian. He rang the bells for daily mass, and afterward people could find him on duty, dispensing sun running airy water to those who needed it. The devout took Ranieri water away for anointing and drinking. Sometimes it miraculously became wine. The hagiographer Benincasa Pisa recorded two such miracles. Once it became a light white, another a fine rosé. This was a real communal saint. He was hospitable and always prepared a nice splintino, drinking a snack for drop-ins. But I see it is now time for me to stop and return from the Italian communes to our own, as Carlos said, disenchanted and often anonymous culture. Perhaps, however, by imitating some of these Italians, at least in their generosity and neighborliness, we moderns can capture some small share of the Italian medieval cities of God. of Italian communes isn't enough. There are 710 pages available on them in my book. Yes? Can you speak to the rise of the fake relic trade uh, in, during this period? Like, was there kind of a... a, uh, a the famous of period of fake relics, as in Chaucer, is the 14th century, and I have to admit that's outside my scope. Although the Dominicans didn't like Alberto the wine porter and claimed that his toe, which was on display, was actually a clove of garlic, but the commune rejected that as Yes? Uh, I feel like it was a lot easier to become a saint back then. Emoji, after doing an awful lot of social service and self flagellation. Well, it sounds like. Uh, it's less bureaucratic. Uh, you know, one guy committed to not um, defiling a woman in private and paid his taxes when he didn't need to. Yeah, he's a good member of the commune. Yeah. Um, Neighbors. The best saints are your next door neighbors. Um, That's my line. I think um, I, I've had a uh, a lot of ideas from you know better understanding kind of these lay communities, um, and I feel like in our modern culture, as we're kind of moving away from uh, maybe the the number of vocations that we used to have, and there's kind of a more of a, a lay movement that's going on. Do you see? Kind of a revival of this kind of culture in. Jane, I mean, I work on thirteenth-century Italy. What do you think? I think yes. Yes, yeah, perhaps. Uh, on the other hand, uh, sociologists have noted uh, since the book Bowling Alone back in the eighties that uh, Americans have stopped joining voluntary associations. So I guess that the creation of these lay associations now are bucking the trend. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that uh, a lot of times it was sort of a, a local process in the commune for almost always canonizing these saints. So <clears throat> did the church ever go back and like reevaluate the canonizations? I'm assuming they did. And how did that sort of play out? Nasty Dominican Inquisitor, Giovanni uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Vicenza. Uh, he went to work on the tomb of uh, Armani Pungilupo, Saint Armani Pungilupo, in the, in the cathedral at 
of Cremona, he was convinced he was a heretic. People didn't think so. They noticed he went to confession and mass regularly. That was good enough for them. So he brought in a bunch of Dominicans with sledgehammers to destroy the tomb. So yeah, occasionally the clerics react. Yes? Did these local saints have proper offices and masses in their local good. communities? Mm -hmm. And did they ever spread elsewhere? Uh, yeah, if you went to Cremona, to Sanomani Pungiluco, and you cured your fish for love, and you went back to Bologna, you might start up a call for him there, even though he's now Polonese. Uh, yes, um, uh, pilgrimage miracles spread the cuts. Even of the local guys and girls. Any comments or questions about the previous lectures since we have, wow, 15 minutes even? I'm wondering about the development of the lay orders of you know, Dominicans and so forth, Catherine and Siena and so forth, very soon after a lot of these like that. Uh, you, were, you remember my first lecture, I just talked about the brothers and sisters of Penance? Uh, by the 1280s, well, there was a Franciscan pope in the 1280s who believed the myth that Francis founded the Brothers and Sisters of Penance. When in fact, as we know, he was actually just joined it, you know, didn't found it. And he tried to, it's typical of the later period as the cleric started to take over, he tried to make all lay penitent groups subject to complete control by Franciscans. And so some groups fled away from the Franciscans, including the first penitents of St. Dominic. The earliest group we know is in 1286 in Oviedo, where six penitent women put on Dominican colors, black and white, not the gray of the Franciscans, and got protection from the local friars. And that's the beginning of the penitence of St. Dominic. Interesting to know, uh, the rule that was written by the head of the order, Mumino Zamora, for them, was lost until about 18 years ago when a friend of mine, uh, my Lady Gardner of uh, the University of, of Loyola University of Baltimore, found the actual text bound into a manuscript in the Siena Public Library. And so we now know what he wrote, and it also explains why it was all women, because he wrote this for a group of women, never mentioned that. It wasn't until the 1400s that a pious forgery rule was created uh, by Tommaso Caparini, so-called Siena, uh, and he, he passed it off as the rule of Mourinho, and it was believed to be until the 20th century, until Mayu's discovery. And at that time, men started to be able to join. So, and that's the first time a, one of the penitents of Dominic officially made part of the order. And they get called third order only in the 1450s. That's, this is my next book. But uh, so I don't know the history of the Franciscans, but there is an example of how what had previously been a label with the brothers and sisters of Penance came under control of the friars, which is what we know of the third world society today, is groups of lady under basically controlled by the body man, the cars. Yes? Uh, I remember about, uh, you mentioned that back then in, about in the Middle Ages, there wasn't a, a, a difference that you could really uh, set between private promises and public vows. If you could uh, tell us when these uh, actually, uh, well, when we have actually a difference. Okay, uh, lay, lay people who were taking private uh, promises, if you will, uh, the first time that these groups start to do this publicly, although here and there there's an occasional case where someone is so notable as holiness that they're allowed to make their promises public in church. Uh, the first time that's done systematically is in the 17th century, and it's the origins of what we know as the act of congregations for religious women, who before, uh, before Vatican II were called third order, like the lay regulars, i.e. they made their vows publicly, wore habits, including the scapular, which the uh, which the Dominican tertiaries didn't wear, although they were all celibate because of private vows. That's the beginning of the public vows of uh, active congregations. Uh, the cloistered nuns and clerics, like Dominican friars and Franciscans, or monks like the Benedictines, have always made public vows because they were publicly ecclesiastical persons. 
but Lady starting to do it publicly is the origin of the Active Sisters. And to this day, I understand, in fact, I knew one, members of the Dominican Lady, which is what we have called the Third Order, I knew at least two who had made vows of uh, celibacy privately in the Confessor, the way that all of them would have done in the Orders. But today, you don't have to even marry the, the uh, Third Order member. That's a big revolution of the in this in the 19th century. That's from a remarkable change. By the way, that's my current book is on the history of the Dominican Lady Third Order Yes. Thank you, Father. This is actually about the talk today. Um, it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it would have been common in the area era and areas that you're describing for people to predominantly be devoted to local saints, mm -hmm. and then maybe because of pilgrimage that there'd be a couple of local saints. local saints. For example, uh, he doesn't fit because he's not a member of the communes. He's actually Portuguese. It's Anthony of Padua. And he happened to die there. He's, he's an exception. He's a cleric. But uh, he's adopted. And it's known as the nickname of the city is, in the Middle Ages, was the city of the saint and the tyrant. Because then Salina de Romano took it over. And to this day, uh, in, in Padua, uh, the joke is it's a city, Lachitas, Senza Porta, Leon Santo, Senza Nome. Uh, it's a city with a, a coffee bar with no doors and a saint with no name. He's still thought a saint. But he's, a, yeah, so there's adopted saints too. You don't have to be a local, but the vast majority of the people who end up as uh, well, communal saints tend to be your neighbors. So, then I think my question is you know, I would guess most Catholics, if you ask them today, oh, you know, what saints are you devoted to? Most of those saints would not be local by any stretch of the imagination. Where do we see that shift? Like, when does that change uh, After, uh, you heard about it yesterday, after Prospero Lombardini, Benedict XIV wrote the massive work to standardized canonization and ended all, all the veneration saints who don't have a papal canonization. And that's what the 1730s. Uh, there's still a bunch of Dominican saints who've never been canonized. That they now get called blessed thanks to Prospero. Because you no longer call someone a saint if they only have a traditional cult. By the way, I mean, this is how the ancient martyrs became saints. The Pope's a So people went and they worked miracles, and yeah, that's the place where God acts. Portable, portable too. Get a towel and take it home. You know that story about the first portable relic of uh, Teresa of Avila. The doctor was asked to examine her incorrupt body, bitter towel off walk home with it in his mouth. <laughs> yes? Do you think there's a place for this kind of process of creating under the saints today? I wish. But if you do it, uh, it's going to be a block of paper canonization thanks to Boston. And I don't think the centralization has stopped. The current Pope is a great centralizer. Well, Contrary to the popular press. What are some examples of um, Popular figures that Padre Pio. Uh, Padre Pio had a huge following <clears throat> promoting his canonization. And I actually think his connection with mystical phenomena like levitation, reading of hearts, uh, the stigmata, all this really slowed down his canonization. Uh, and, and I think especially the popular demand that the clerics in Rome got antsy about it. I mean, it took a, he was, he was, he's the last saint I can think of who was canonized taken by popular, really by popular demand. A lot of the saints that are being produced by modern popes have no cult really at all. I mean, they're canonizing every other, other pope. None of them have any following, really, except even John Paul II. Certainly not Paul VI. <laughs> he was a nice guy. Uh, yeah, I think they're working on him too. I don't, yeah, I'm not a fan of papal sense. <laughs> I like homeroom better. Yes? Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about the tension between the locality of these things and the universality of the church. And so, did the communes, when they, when they make their scenes, do they see them? They're seeing things, but how does that fit into the universality of the church? Like, uh, I, I quoted a famous American senator 
uh, I paraphrased him and once said, all politics is local, all religion is local. Uh, I don't get his attention because people think of themselves as uh, the Catholics of my, of my town or even my neighborhood. Uh, uh, of course, the Italians live close enough to Rome to know when the Pope dies and who was elected. But remember that in places like North England, uh, you know, a Pope might die and won't hear for five or six years. Uh, the modern centralized Catholic way of doing things doesn't fit the numbers. In fact, it doesn't. In fact, it's very much a product of the Reformation. If you heard about yesterday, yes. So you laid out a bunch, many examples today of saints who sort of demonstrate the heroic virtue by sort of interacting with the communal government, right? But were there any or neighbors? Were there neighbors? So were there any were there any saints that came out of like who held political office themselves or yes. were part of the communal government? Uh Perenzi, for example, Bolivia, but I, I can't do all of these guys. Uh, you can read about him in that book. But yeah, he was a, he was actually a protestant who was murdered by heretics. He's a he's, he's a martyr saint. Here's a fun one. Uh, the first, after St. Dominic, the first canonized Dominican saint is Peter of Verona. Has anyone heard of Peter Martyr? Uh, his murderer got, uh, escaped from jail and was on the lam. Uh, his, uh, he eventually showed up at the Dominican house in Forlì, which is east of Bologna, uh, went to confession and became a lay brother, and died in the odor of holiness, and you can visit the murder of the the assassin saint's tomb in the cathedral between two other Dominican local saints. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, all saints are local. He's one of my favorites. Eyes, what's his name? Carino Balsamo, the assassin saint. Uh, my student, uh, Don Kudlo, whom uh, Russell Hittinger's chair at uh, Tulsa is now Holbein. Uh, he wrote a biography of Peter Martyr and an article in Catholic Historical Review about Blessed Balls and Blessed Carino. More than you'd ever want to know about an assassin's Yes? I have a question. Is there any evidence of politicization uh, of the canonization process within the local Uh Yeah. Uh, in that, remember these saints tend to be local. Uh, and they're usually, uh, like the earlier bishop saints, it's because they bless armies that win battles against the next door neighbors in the next city. So, yeah, it's sort of hard to sell that kind of saint to a Bolivian saint like that to the Middle East or the Rajani down the road. But even within the commune itself, because I can imagine there might be um, an advantage of having a saint in your country, for example. Honestly, I've never run across that kind of controversy. Uh, one of the things that the same would have to do is work miracles for everybody. If you only did it for his own family, he's not going anywhere. Yeah. Is this the last question? Oh, um, just to kind of brush up on my Dominican history, um, I had heard that uh, St. Dominic first founded a, a order of Dominican sisters to pray for his ministry. Uh, his first religious foundation uh, is, uh, what's the name of the city in Southern France? Crumi. Uh, he, uh, he founded a community of cloistered nuns, uh, basically as a place for ex-Catholic women, who of course couldn't go back to their families, they became nuns. Uh, and the earliest, the earliest Dominicans are priests, and occasionally people were part of the monastic familia of that community. Uh, and then he, ended, he eventually, that's in 1209, in 1216, he gets a papal approbation for the order of the men themselves. But originally, they were they were attached to the convent of Cluy. Uh, remember, I said that the conversi were originally people who were attached to a monastic group, the original, the original inhabitants. Uh, that also included clerics, married people, some of the same sorts of elderly people, young people. And that's the kind of group in Peru that was the first foundation. But it was founded as a place for ex-Catholic women to go. Thank you.
So the, you said the 1400s rule created for Dominican men. Um, I think I'm Oh, uh, that's, no, no, the, in 1405, uh, <clears throat> Tommaso of Siena, Capolini, uh, created a pious fiction, which he claimed was, although it's got lots of similarities, he claimed it was the rule for the lay penitents of St. Dominic. He claimed it was written by Munoz Zamora in 12, uh, 1286. In fact, it's not, we now have what he And when he rewrote this thing, which became the official rule of the Dominican Third Order until 1923, uh, he included for the first time men in it, which the older, the older thing that Munoz actually wrote was only for women. That's why in the time of St. Catherine, all of the Dominican so-called tertiaries who aren't called tertiaries, they're just called penitents. That's why they're all women. They also tend to be almost all uh, wealthy matrons, because if you're going to be a professional penitent, you've got to have an income. And since you have to be celibate, uh, it's easiest to do this if you're a wealthy, wealthy widow. Uh, like Pika, Catherine Siena's mother, I told the story about how she and his mother sued the brothers to get a dowry so they could set themselves up as that's 14th century, that's how I'm not Thank you all. Wonderful questions.